Thank you for that prayer this morning, Jim. It leads us beautifully into our study of the Word of God this morning. I would like you this morning to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10. We're continuing in our study of the New Testament book of Titus, and again, we're looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take that Bible and keep it as your own. It is our gift to you. If you're watching by live stream this morning, I think you'll be able to follow along because most all of the verses will be on the screen. Two weeks ago... I shared with you that in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we have a unit of scripture. But it was too much to cover in just one message. So two weeks ago, we looked at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then last week, I shared a message from Proverbs for our mothers. And so today, we come back to part 2. So this is Sound Doctrine and the Christian Life, Part 2, Titus 2, verses 6 through 10. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, who is an elder on the island of Crete. And this is what he says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, our first point this morning is a righteous life. I want to go back and just briefly share with you what I shared two weeks ago that will help us to catch up. Maybe some of you weren't here two weeks ago. And just talk about what this section of scripture is about. I shared with you two weeks ago that sound doctrine, correctly taught and correctly understood, will always result in righteous living. So, if someone claims to be a Christian, a born-again, regenerated Christian, but is not living a righteous life then either they have not been taught sound doctrine or they have not understood correctly sound doctrine. Because when when sound doctrine is taught and understood correctly for the true believer, it will always, always result in righteous living. Back in verse 1 of this section... Paul says to Titus, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. I want you to teach in accordance with sound doctrine. So what is sound doctrine? Let me repeat this for you again. 
sound doctrine, though it can be defined in various ways, is basically the systematic, faithful teaching of all the truths of the Bible, especially those related to the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. So that's what sound doctrine is. It is the systematic, faithful preaching and teaching of all the truths of Scripture, especially those related to the gospel of Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. At the end of Titus chapter 1, Paul says to Titus, stop the false teachers. He says, silence them, rebuke them sharply. And one of the main ways, not the only way, but one of the main ways you will stop false teaching is by number one, teaching sound doctrine, and number two, leading righteous lives. We looked at that very important verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Righteous lives would be the evidence that Christians live what they preach and teach. Now, before we get into the section this morning, I want to mention something. It's kind of a side note, but I think it goes along in an important way with this text. Two weeks ago, we saw that the Apostle Paul told Titus to address the older men and the older women, and the older women were to teach the younger women. Today, we will see that Titus is told to address the younger men. And we see this throughout the New Testament, especially in some specific passages where we are instructed on how to treat, how to instruct different age groups within the church. I think of, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, where as Paul writes to a young elder, Timothy, he tells him about the older men, the older women, the younger men, and the younger women, and the widows. They're all addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I want to say this this morning. I believe that God's ideal is for a healthy, biblical, New Testament church to be multi-generational. I just want you to think about that with me this morning. I want you to think about these instructions, which are just an example of the New Testament as a whole. I believe that God's ideal for a New Testament local church that is biblically healthy is to be multi-generational. Now, I had a conversation with a young man. This has been quite a few years ago. He went to... He was telling me about his church. He went to a uh, large church 
And it was a church that he said that had geared itself almost exclusively for the younger generation, for young families, for young singles. And he was very proud of the fact that in his church there was no one over 50. Everyone in his church was under 50 years of age, and he thought that was a really good thing. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. It may have been a good church, but I don't think it's God's ideal. I think that church could have been helped immensely by having older men and older women in that church. Conversely, I have talked with quite a few people over the years who have spent time down in Florida or Arizona or places like that, especially in retirement areas where they have gone to churches that had all older people. They would tell me we don't have any young families, no young singles. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Maybe they're doing the best they can in their context, but I don't believe it's God's ideal. I don't. I think those churches could be helped immensely by having younger men and younger women. I believe with all my heart that we, as older men and older women, we need, we need younger men and younger women. And I believe that younger men and younger women need older men and older women. We need each other in the body of Christ. And I just want you to think about how that is built in to this entire passage. So now to our passage this morning. The Apostle Paul addresses younger men and Titus as a younger elder. In verse 6, he says, Paul writes, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So he's addressed older men, older women, older women who are to teach the younger women and what they're to teach them, and now urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is a, an important, powerful statement. You are to teach young men, young Christian men, to be spirit-controlled. Because self-control, according to Galatians chapter 5, is a fruit of the Spirit. So teach them, urge them to be self-controlled, to control their passions and desire in such a way that the Holy Spirit controls them and they live for Christ and long to honor Christ. Young men can frequently be impulsive, passionate, ambitious, volatile, and sometimes arrogant. And you are to urge them to exercise self-control and to show good sense and judgment in all things. But rather than me defining it for you, I believe that the Bible defines this. And it's amazing how many times Scripture defines Scripture when we compare Scripture with Scripture. If you want a succinct, beautiful definition of what it means for young men to be self-controlled, it is 2 Timothy 2.22. It is Paul writing to another young elder, Timothy, and he says to him, So flee youthful passions 
and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's it. That's young men here today. This is what it means to be self-controlled, to flee youthful passions, to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Another similar passage would be 1 Peter 5.5, where Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, young men, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in verses 7 and 8, Paul says to Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Excuse me, now it's interesting here. As Paul writes to Titus, he's not just saying, Titus, urge the younger men, but Titus, you're one of them. You're one of the younger men. So, to the younger men, and especially to you, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Whatever you do, display good works. Ephesians 2, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God approved beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus, be a model of good works. And good works here simply means good works. We are not saved by our good works, but our good works are the evidence that we are truly saved, that we are truly born again. So Titus, be kind, be gentle. Help those who are needy. Help those who are sick. Do good to all of those around you. Be a model, a model of good works. And in your teaching, and in your teaching, Titus, show integrity. Integrity here means be completely honest and truthful. Titus, don't try to manipulate people. It is easy for people who have the gift or a gift in public speaking to try to manipulate people, to manipulate their emotions, to manipulate them financially. He says, I don't want you to do that. It means don't exaggerate. Don't embellish. Don't say what isn't true. In all of your teaching, show integrity. Show dignity. Dignity is something that he was supposed to teach the older men. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, 
dignified. Same word here. Dignity here means be serious about things that are serious. There is nothing wrong with laughing. There is nothing wrong with having a good time, with joking around occasionally. But when it comes to the eternal things of God, when it comes to the eternal state of people's souls, be serious. Know that these are serious issues. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Sound speech is similar to sound doctrine. Same word for sound. It literally means healthy, whole doctrine, healthy, whole speech. But I think it means more than that. And and I love this. This is what I believe it means after I've studied it this week. Sound speech means let your speech be saturated with scripture. Let your speech be saturated with scripture. Let it be good speech, sound speech, biblical speech. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. I want you to be a model of good works, Titus, young man, and teach this to the younger men. And in your teaching, show integrity, show dignity, and sound speech. And here's why. So that you cannot be condemned. Excuse me. So that your teaching and your life cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So that if someone wants to say something evil about your life or about your teaching, it won't stick. Everybody will know that it's not true because of the way you teach and because of the way you live. Let this be an instruction to all of us, but especially to those of you who are younger, you young men, What excellent teaching for you to seek to live by. And notice that he says at the end, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul may have been referring to him too. Like, I started those churches. You're appointing elders there. Don't let them speak evil about me either. But I think it may apply to the churches as a whole live in such a way that they won't say anything evil about your church. They won't condemn your church. Because when one person represents a church, they can bring criticism upon the whole church. Well, our second point this morning is bond servants. Bond servants. For many Christians today and throughout church history, the most important and fertile field for evangelism is the place where they work. It is a good thing to invite people to come to church with you. That can be a very good thing. But I will say this to you, the main crux of your witness, the main place of evangelism is out there. Out there, I think of John MacArthur's famous quote and what she says, We gather to worship, we scatter to evangelize. We gather to worship, we scatter 
to evangelize. It is out there in the workplace where people will find out whether you're a hard worker or whether you're lazy. It is out there that they'll find out whether you're honest or dishonest. They'll find out whether you're friendly or mean. They'll find out whether you're easy to get along with or obnoxious and hard to get along with. That's the place where most evangelism takes place is out there, out there. Now, Paul says, bond servants. I want to just mention something briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But this is written at the time of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, there was an extensive system of slavery. This is whom Paul is addressing here or having Titus address. Many people were slaves. Now I want to say to you very carefully this morning that slave system was evil and it was wrong. But in that slave system, it ran the spectrum. Some slaves were treated very harshly and were physically, mentally, and emotionally abused. Some were given more responsibility. Some could have actually been supervisors, managers of households and businesses because they proved themselves worthy. Some slaves were allowed to marry, have children, own property in very limited ways. So, if you want the Bible's understanding, you need to look at the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the Bible, to understand the Bible's teaching on this slave system. In this particular passage of Scripture, Paul does not address the system, but simply acknowledges that in every church there were slaves. They're called equal in Christ, in Galatians. But his purpose here is not to address the system, but to teach the slaves how to live in this system. If we were back in the first century, it is very likely that some, if not many of us here today, would have been slaves. So throughout church history, most Bible teachers have seen parallels Not one-to-one, not identical in any way, but parallels between what Paul instructs in the New Testament to bondservants with employees who work in the secular or ministry workplace. And so that's how I'm going to approach this this morning. Bondservants, verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Now, when it says in everything... Don't misunderstand. It does not mean that they were to do whatever they were told, even if it was sinful. No, it's not what this means. So if they were told to lie or cheat or steal, they were not to submit to that. If they were physically abused, they were not to submit to that. What it is saying is bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything that is reasonably asked of them. So if you are in a place of employment, whatever is reasonably asked of you to do your job, to do your task, you are to submit. You are 
to the person or persons who are over you in authority. Now, I'm going someplace with this because the passage goes, so hang on here. There's a reason you're supposed to do this. They are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. They are to be easy to work with. They are to be a pleasure to work with. They are to be pleasing to those who are in authority over them. They can be trusted. They can be looked to, to take on a job, to take on a responsibility, and know that it will be well done. Let what you do be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not argumentative. Now, this doesn't mean you can't stand up for what you believe. You can, but what it means is don't argue about everything. So if you're asked to do something reasonable, don't argue with the person in authority over you. Don't say they don't know what they're doing and I know how to do this better. It's not a good witness. It's not a good testimony for Christ. Don't be argumentative. Not pilfering. Pilfering is where we get our modern-day term embezzlement. It was common in this time when a master would look the other way for someone to steal money, for someone to take something from them. And he says a Christian is not supposed to be like that. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Don't act in an underhanded way in the place where you work, but showing all good faith. Good faith here literally means faithfulness. It means you can be trusted to be faithful. You will be at work. You will be on time. If you're called to work eight hours or nine hours, you will work a full eight hours. You will work a full nine hours. You will be faithful to do everything that you are asked to do. And here's why. And here's why. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that in everything... They may look at your life and the way you act at work and say, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. And it's your opportunity to tell them why. They will see in you a difference of character, a difference in morals, a difference in motivation, a difference in attitude. Now let me say this. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to do hard work, to do excellent work and seek to please our employer in order to maybe get a promotion or to get a raise. It's not wrong if you do that with the right motives. What I am saying is those should never be the Christian's highest objective. Above all else, far above all else, your sincere desire should be even on the job, always to do that which is pleasing and acceptable to your Savior. That's your goal. That's your objective, is to please Jesus in everything that you do. Great parallel passage. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. The Apostle Paul again writing to the church at Colossae. 
Bondservants. Same word. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Same thing. Same thing is that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Think of those two phrases. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now as I bring this to a conclusion this morning, I want you to think with me. That we work hard. We do all these things. To adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. But adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Ultimately. Ultimately. We want to make much of Jesus. We want people to see we do this for Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. Why do you live that way? Why do you talk that way? Why do you think that way? It's because of Jesus. Because he's my Savior. And I live for him and he is worthy of me living for him and doing what is pleasing and right in his sight. And so I want to use that to bring this whole section, verses 1 through 10, to a conclusion this morning, bringing it all together. The ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of sound doctrine is the exaltation, worship, and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are taught sound doctrine. We live righteous lives so that Jesus might be exalted, so that he might be worshipped, and so that he might receive all the glory and honor and praise. Folks, Jesus is worthy of correct, accurate, biblical teaching. We do it for him. It's just like I shared with our mothers last Sunday. Why do you do what you do? You do it to know and praise and live for the living God. You do it for Jesus. He is worthy. He is worthy of the righteous lives that we live. We live righteous lives to please him. To make him look really good. He is worthy. To be proclaimed as the only means of salvation. You can't come to God unless you come through my Jesus. By faith alone and his finished work on the cross. He is worthy. So we proclaim him as the only means of our salvation. He is worthy to be proclaimed as the source of our power and strength. That enables us. To obey the commands of scripture. How are you able to live like that? Well it's not in my own strength. It's in the strength of Jesus. It's in the power of Jesus. So folks. In everything you think. In everything you say. In everything you do. Do it all for Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the truth of your word. You instruct us to live righteous lives. Through Christ, you give us the power and strength to live righteous lives. May we honor Christ. May we honor Christ. And may we honor the gospel through living good lives that are well-pleasing in your sight. Remind us, remind us daily that Jesus is worthy of our praise, our worship, and of our constant obedience to all he commands us. And in his name we pray. Amen.